you're taking your seat, please uh, grab your copy of the Scriptures, God's Word, and turn to Joshua chapter 40. Um, we are a Harvest Bible Chapel, not uh, Harvest, uh, you know, maybe we'll talk about the Bible Chapel. Um, we're big about the Bible around here, and if you don't bring one with you today, we've got some people coming around, flag them down, grab a Bible, turn to Joshua, 26th book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and we're in chapter 20. By the way, I believe that we, uh, we have some folks who are a part of uh, planting a harvest in Vincennes, Indiana. Where are you? Can you stand up uh, wherever you're at? Awesome, awesome. And uh, love that. We are uh, Harvest is part of uh, being a place that uh, churches that plant churches. And it's exciting for us to always be able to see uh, God's church growing and increasing. Glad you're here. They're just kind of here observing and watching some different things we've got going on. And uh, what a delight it is to have them here. Uh, Joshua chapter 20. You there? Excellent. Look at the last uh, six words, I believe, of chapter 19. And let's actually kind of start there in those last six words. And they say, uh, so they, uh, this is uh, transitioning from uh, the people of Israel, so they did something, so they finished. Finished what? They finished dividing. Finished dividing what? They finished dividing the land. This is a great summary point just to kind of start at. If, if you haven't been around, been gone uh, on vacation or newer here, we are going through the book of Joshua. And uh, we're in chapter 20. And that kind of summarizes where we've kind of come at. These chapter 15 through 19 is about dividing up the promised land and everything that's been taking uh, place there. So it's a big summarizing statement, but it's a great testifying statement. And it's a testifying statement about God. And we talked last week a little bit about this. One of the things that testifies is God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word. What he has said he will do, he will do. In fact, uh, the reality is that God's people now have a sending base place. They have land. And you may go, big deal. I've known that for like all my life. No, 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 big deal. Because God had told Abraham back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, that he made a, God made a covenant with Abraham that he would raise a nation, a people from him, and they'd have a place, a sending base place to the world. And guess what? There is now a people, and they now have a place. That's a big deal. Centuries after God said he would do this, he's doing this. And it's just one more reminder that God is faithful to his word. The, the sentence also tells us that, uh, that God is not a God of chaos. Uh, dividing the promised land was not a chaotic event, and yet it could have been a very chaotic event. And in fact, uh, I want for us just kind of for fun to take a look at this little video clip here. This is of uh, the movie Far and Away, a clip in it talks about uh, just a reenactment of the dividing of the land, if you will, in Oklahoma back on April 2nd, 1889. This is how they decided to divide the land. So there they are, all lined up. I mean, could you imagine Joshua just lining everybody up along the west side of the bank of Jericho? And then he's like, go! And there they go. And look at everybody's just watching. Yep, taking pictures. And uh, I don't know, I think there's problems with this approach. Um, like, we'll see a couple here in just a, like, there's one. I mean, think about this. This is everybody. Yeah, there's some famous people in this one. But in this, I mean, look at the chaos. True? More chaos coming. There they go. Heading, heading west. <laughs> yeah. Not a good idea. No. No. Not a good idea. True? Not a good... I mean... Who's the knucklehead that came up with this idea? In our country, way to go, America. Land of together. Yeah. What's with that? I mean, here we are July 4th weekend. It's like, no, we're free people. We're, we're supposed to be a together people. And <laughs> times is just embarrassing. What? But, but really, bring it back. They could have done it that way. 
I mean, they have this land and they could have said a free for all, but, but in it, what we see is dividing the promised land was not done that way. It was not done in a chaotic way. In fact, it's so cool as we've seen that God's people were very much a part of participating with him in it. They were drawing up the 12 boundaries for the territories. Let's maybe even call them the, for the 12 states in the kind of our context. They were drawing up these 12 states. God could have said, these are the places, these are the lines, but they were engaged with God in doing that. Uh, They were dividing them up and they did it with the uh, 12 tribes. They did it one at a time. They brought a tribe ahead and they cast lots for it. And it's like, guess what? You got Indiana or however that, that state works. And that's what was going on with it. And it was for their good. I mean, that was just a for their good kind of a reality. So you didn't end up with what we just saw. Hey, six words, and we've already been reminded of two key principles about God. God is faithful to his word, and God is not a God of chaos. And I'll even just add a third thing to that. Because both of those carry the context reality that God wants to do relationship with his people. Faithful to his word is done in relationship with his people. Faithful or God is not a God of context in, in relation to people. I love the fact that the Bible doesn't just tell us historical stuff. It talks to us about who God is. And if you happen to be here and maybe, I don't know, you have this idea that God is kind of this old, uh, confused, kind of bit detached guy walking around with two big giant tablets of a morality list listed number one from 10. And he's just kind of walking around bonking people on the head with it. And, you know, I'm just going to tell you, that is not God. God is awesome, engaged, involved, even in the details. And God is set apart unlike anything else. And God wants his people to be set apart unlike anyone else. And we go into these couple chapters here to where these are chapters sometimes, we went through 15 to 19 last week, like real fast. There are chapters you can skip through. These are two more that you can skip through. We're doing chapter 20 this week, chapter 21 next week. And these are chapters you can skip through. But, but I want for us to see, I'm going to use one word, see the beauty of God in relationship with his people in these two chapters. This is a beautiful thing. Just a beautiful thing. So let's just enjoy it. God wants his people to live set apart unlike anybody else on the planet so that everybody else on the planet can see God in them. And God structures it that way. Let, let's read through chapter 20 and then we'll talk about it. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then, then when? Well, after they were dividing up the land. Uh, then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses. Got that picture? This isn't a brand new idea. This has been talked about for centuries now, uh, decades now, actually. Verse three, uh, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Does that not sound like a comic movie character guy? Ah, the avenger of blood. Verse four, he shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city Explain his case to the elders of that city. And then they shall take him into the city and give him a place. And he shall remain with them. How sweet. Verse 5, and if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. In other words, he's not a murderer. It was an accidental death. Verse 6, and he shall remain in that city until he had stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who was high priest at the time. Then, in other words, after the death of the high priest of the city, the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. Verse 7, so they set apart. I like that. By the way, whenever you see the word holy, it just means set apart. God is holy, holy, holy. It means he's set apart, set apart, set apart. And so what do they do? They set apart Kedesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah 
and beyond the Jordan, in other words, on the east side of Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland, and the tribe from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of God, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. God, I just pray as we dig into this, show us more of you. Show us more of you, how you work, who you are, how you work with your people, more of you, God, so that we will leave here being increasingly more about you precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, let's talk geography first. Let's get that on the table so we orient ourselves. Geography. Uh, uh, let's begin with uh, these six cities selected as cities of refuge. Uh, there's three on the west side of the Jordan uh, listed from north to south in the text. There's Kedesh, there's Shechem. We've actually been to Shechem. That's where uh, after Jericho, after the battles of Ai, they were, all the people went up there. They built the altars and had kind of this really cool thing in this natural amphitheater up in Shechem. And then Hebron. And if you remember Hebron, Hebron was the place where Caleb wanted, 85-year-old six-pack ab Caleb, wanted to go back over and take that land because the big dogs were there. And he's like, give them to me, give them to me, baby. And he did, and he took them. And so they got the land of Hebron there. And then the three uh, cities on the east side of the Jordan, and they're listed south to north in the text. And those are Bezer, Ramoth, and Golan. That kind of gives a picture for you. I've put these circles around them uh, just to help uh, give you an idea. The, from the center of the circle out to each edge is right around 20 miles. So it's a 20-mile radius. Back in that day, 20 miles would be an acceptable, especially as we'll talk here, uh, it would be a full day, but a day that they could get to that place. You can pretty much see what this does is it covers the whole area any place is accessible in a day's time Um, this is the cities of refuge what are the purposes of the cities of refuge you can see there in verse three i have the english standard version it says this so that in other words it's a purpose statement so that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly in other words without premeditated murder may flee there and they shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. New International Version says, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. There's another translation. I love it. It uses the term, so that they may find a safe place. Cities of refuge were designed to be a safe place uh, for a particular situation, a refuge. Karen and I were last month uh, out in Wyoming camping. And uh, we were out in Jackson Hole area and drove by uh, what was called the uh, National Elk Refuge right outside of Jackson Hole. The irony, didn't see one elk there. Not that we're bitter about it. What's the purpose of the National Elk Refuge? Uh, Here it is off of their website. To provide, preserve, restore, and manage winter habitat for the nationally significant Jackson Elk Herd, as well as habitat for endangered species, birds, fish, and other big game animals. So what's the National Elk Refuge all about? Well, what it's all about is it's about keeping people from uh, loading up their gun, getting some 338 Magnums, and just going out, and anytime they want, just unloading them on elk. They're protecting them from that. Uh, They've got a plan in place to how to deal with that whole situation. Uh, it's, It's a cool idea. They're protecting endangered elk. Think about this. How cool would this be if there was a place that was designated to protect endangered people? I say that, and you may be thinking, you know, I I can think of a place like that, sheltering wings, or I can think of a place like that that does that kind of a thing. Now, but but let's go beyond that, because the reality is, is this. How cool is this? Imagine an entire city, an entire city set aside set apart to be a place of refuge. Now, on top of that, imagine six entire cities set apart to be places of refuge for this particular situation. 
And I just think of that and I go, how cool is that? Just God is unlike anyone else. And let me remind us of this. This whole idea was God's idea. Adam and Eve did not come up with it. Noah didn't come up with it. Abraham didn't come up with it. Isaac didn't come up with it. Jacob didn't come up with it. Joseph didn't come up with it. Caleb didn't come up with it, nor did Joshua come up with it. God came up with it. How sweet. How kind. How caring. That God with his people says, listen, I want to do something that is unlike anything of the day. We first hear about the cities of refuge. If you want to write these down and go back later and do some more study on it, you can. Exodus 21, we read about it. Then in Numbers 35. Then in Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 19. And then we find it here in Joshua 20, where it's being stated as it's now happening. In every one of these cases, uh, God is the one in Exodus 21, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 19. And every one of these cases, God is the one who's saying, I have a thing and I want for you to do it. This is God's idea by God's initiative. This is coming from his heart. This is coming from his mind. And I just asked the question, where else in BC days did you see a king doing this kind of a thing? Where else in BC days did you see people giving this much care for certain situations regarding life? The fact of the matter was in BC days, it was, it was gladiator carnage. You're a piece of meat, especially from a leadership standpoint. This was unlike anywhere because God is unlike anyone. And he's setting it up in place. I just love this. Now, city of refuge, uh, what's it for? Uh, who's it a safe place from? Verse three, the avenger of blood. Understand uh, in the text, in the Hebrew word, it does not mean the revenger of blood. It means the avenger of blood. Avenger. Uh, other passages, the term in Hebrew is used to be talking about restoring. In Ruth chapters 2 and 3, the same word is used to talk about redeeming. It's cool because the whole idea of it carries this thing that something is out of whack. Something is out of equilibrium. And it needs to be avenged back. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy 19. Uh, Hang a left about 30 pages in your Bible. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19 uh, talks to us about this avenger of blood. I want to give the context here. This is about, uh, I'm just going to say, about 60 years earlier from Joshua 20. Somewhere around there. Let me start chapter 19, Deuteronomy verse 1. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses. Oh, by the way, guess what? That's happening in Joshua. So what God is saying here to Moses at the time in Joshua is happening. Verse 2, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer may flee to them. Verse 4, this is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. That's really important because that's what this is all about. This is all about saving uh, lives in particular situations. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past. Again, remember, this is an agricultural world. This is a hand-with-hand world. This is a a working side-by-side world where accidents could easily happen, and they list one of them here. Uh, Verse 5, as when someone goes to the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. Hey, have you ever swung an axe and the, the head's loose on it? You know, and you kind of got to take it and by, you know, kind of boom, boom to, to get that head sunk down a little bit more and adjust it. I've actually had an axe in the past where I was working with it and the head did fly off. And I'm really grateful no one was around because of that. But that's the reality of what's going on. And what does it say? It says he may flee to one of those cities and that he may live. Again, this is a pro-life thing for the situation. Lest the avenger of blood and hot anger Pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally. Though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his brother in the past. In other words, it wasn't premeditated murder. 
Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and walking ever in his ways. What a great life statement. Then you shall add three other cities to these three. Look at verse 10. This is key. Lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Do you see what's happening here? If, if, there's, if there's innocent blood shed in the land, uh, something's out of whack. Something's out of equilibrium. And that needs to be brought back in proper order here. The avenger of blood. I'm not going to go to the text to talk about this beyond this, but the avenger of blood was put in place and it would work this way. If, uh, if a family member of yours was murdered, uh, usually one who is closest in the family to that person or a man in the family was set up as set established as the avenger of blood. In other words, murder had taken place and it was this guy's job to go and make it right, to, to take care of the guilt of bloodshed. And he was to go and kill the murderer. That was the situation. And by the way, that was the plan. And yet in it, think about this in that day and age uh, where that is a a justice role reality brought into a a very tight culture. And and you think about it in Joshua where they're coming into this land. And while they have the pieces of the puzzle for God's kind of justice uh, set in place, they don't really have it set in place permanent. And and so they're learning this. And can you just imagine if maybe you find out that that your brother-in-law is killed and, and you're honked off, right? I mean, and you know, like some guy axed him in the head. And uh, maybe some people aren't going to be so patient to want to go, I want to find out, did this guy do it on purpose or did he do it on unpurpose? And you can just imagine in the whole scenario how, how this could provide a situation within a community where it's just like, you killed my brother. I don't care whether they're guilty or innocent. I'm taking you down. And God's like, no, my people don't operate that way. No, no, no. You see, if it's murder, then blood should repay blood for murder. But if it's innocent, we need to find that out. We need to protect that person from this kind of unrighteous anger, this rogue anger kind of approach. I'm telling you, God is setting up a community of people. So what about the accidental death? Well, God provides a way, and here's how it works. An accidental death occurs. The manslayer, the person who was involved in this Deuteronomy situation, who was swinging the axe, didn't mean to. And all of a sudden, the guy he's with dies. What's he supposed to do? Well, he could run to the family, and then he could be uh, in rogue anger taken out. What it was designed to do is what he's supposed to do right then and there is he's supposed to head out. And he's supposed to run to the city of refuge because God has a purpose and a plan on how to deal with this. And so he runs to the city of refuge and he gets to the city of refuge. And by the way, within it, I'm not going to go to the text as well as we see in other historical uh, books. It talks about how the, the, the roads to the city of refuge were to be main roads. This wasn't like find a gravel road out in Weirdville and then just follow it. And, and I hope you get there. This was like, no, get on 465 main road. And in that day, these main roads to these six cities were to be well taken care of so that people could get there fast. And so they're, they're big roads. They're well taken care of roads. And also, by the way, they literally had directional signage to them. City of refuge that way, exit six, you know, whatever it is. I mean, get on 465, just go to refugeville. Uh, that's what's happening. And so that's how it was set up. Then when they would arrive there, by the way, the guy didn't have to go. It was his choice. But if he didn't go, guess what? He's open and unprotected. So he runs to the refuge. He goes to the refuge. When he gets to the refuge there, he actually meets the elders on, at the city gate. Uh, the elders are there. And by the way, they meet with immediately. This was a 24-7 kind of a thing. The gates of the city were never locked. 
And so whenever he would get there, they would get the elders, they would meet with him, and they would make a distinction. Is this guy just playing a game and he actually did do murder? Or is this a possible accidental death? If they come to the conclusion there that, no, this was a clear murder and you're trying to save yourself, it's justice was done by leaving him outside of the city. Why? You got the picture. So that justice would be done. If they deemed that it was possible that he was innocent of the thing, it was an accidental death, they would then let him in the city. It wasn't done, uh, the whole deal done yet, uh, but they would let him into the city. And then in verse 6, you can see the case was pleaded before a jury of the people of the city. We're going to talk a little bit about this next week in all these cities because there's 48 Levite cities, and these are six of them. And so then the people are engaged in the process and they come to a final conclusion. If they deem that it's murder, they send him outside of the city gate. If they deem that it was an accidental death, he stays in the city, protected, and he becomes part of the city. The only time he could leave was when the high priest of the city would die. And then he could be released and go home. But do understand this, even in an accidental death, he had to stay there in that protection, in that refuge. There was even consequences of life taken in of this, even in an innocent situation. And if the priest died, he would receive, hey, here's a modern term, amnesty. Be allowed to go back. That's geography, that's purpose, that's how it worked. Let's talk about a couple implications. This isn't a history lesson. If you're thinking of this just as a historical lesson of interest, then um, you're not seeing this correct. The Bible is given to us to tell us about God. And this is clearly a scenario that is telling us about God. And I would think it tells us two things about God. Two things that I want for us to see that this refuge reality brings about and tells us about God. Number one, the Lord greatly values human life. The Lord greatly values human life. And I say that in detail. I'm not just saying God greatly values life. God does, but I'm putting it in a different category. God greatly values human life. Okay. I love your puppy too. I love your kitty, but we're talking human life. And there is a grand distinction here. Turn to Genesis chapter one, because we need to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter one, there is something very unique about humans And this whole concept is God looks at this and he says, listen, my people are kind of all new in all this thing. And I need to set up something to care for a situation that could happen. Because I go, how many times does this happen? Accidental deaths. I don't know. Uh, Not like millions or not like hundreds of thousands. I don't know. I don't even know if it's thousands. I'm thinking maybe like 100 50 in a year? I have no idea. But this is the cool thing about God. God is aware of that and he so values life that this is something that he wants his people to be doing differently and uniquely because he cares about life. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Pause. Okay. Either God has multiple personality disorder or God is a Trinitarian reality. Do you see the plural? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. I pause on that because we're not talking about the Trinity today. But, but what we're talking about is God and doing relationship. And in that reality, if we do not understand the Trinity is a foundational reality of part of what makes humanity unique. You see, the Godhead in eternity past was fine and well without us. It's not like they got bored. I mean, the Trinity in the past, they loved one another. 
They did a relationship together. It was about glory for one another. It was about submission to one another. I'm telling you, the Trinity knows how to do life. And when they created mankind, in particular, the Trinity is like, we want to create a group of people that can be able to experience what we've experienced for all of eternity past and bring glory. It's important to understand some of this. I've got to keep going with that, but I just want to lay that out here. Let's keep reading. And and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you see? There is something unique about mankind. There is something unique about men and women. They are above, they have a unique place in it. Uh, Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. Four times in two verses, uh, God talks about this created in our image thing. What is this image deal? You know, this is not like God has arms and legs and a torso and a head and balding like, you know, some of us. Um, You know, that's not what this is talking about. It's not about put a light there and then you stand there and then see the image in the back. That's what God looks like. That's not what this is talking about. That's not what this is talking about at all. Instead, what it's saying is God has created us with a unique capacity. God has created mankind with a unique thing above all other creation on earth. I like the two words I've heard. Uh, uh, this is talking about representative likeness. You know, I was just talking about how the Trinity does relationship together. That's what we're talking about. There, there is no other group of horses or puppy dogs or kitty cats or animals that gather together like this to do what we're doing. Only mankind has the capacity and and the ability to be able to worship God in the kind of a way that we do. Only humans can do that. Yes, do animals bring glory to God? Yeah, I do believe that they do. But not like humans can bring glory to God in the capacity of it. Humans have the ability to know God in a different kind of capacity than any animal, beast, creature, cell, anything on earth. You have been created in the image of God with a representative likeness, with a capacity that has a similarness to the Trinity. So cool. Now you may say, but Doug, like, isn't it like two chapters later, sin comes into the picture and kind of screws that all up? Uh, Turn to Genesis chapter nine real quick. Genesis chapter nine. Because some think that, Uh, Some have the view that the image of God thing stopped after sin came into the picture. Uh, I disagree, and here's why. Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the context. This is post the, the flood. This is, uh, God is telling uh, Noah and his family to, hey, we're, we're starting over again. And basically he gives them the exact same declaration that he gave Adam and Eve. I want more like you. 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 And then go down to the end of verse four. From his fellow men, I will reckon a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. I think one more time here, we see God restating. He's not talking about something that was in the past and no longer going, but he's talking with Noah in such a way that he's talking to us like, hey, this whole image thing, it's still ongoing. You've been created in the image of God. You've been created with the ability to grasp the glory of God, even if a person isn't grasping the glory of God. You've been created with the capability to be able to know God, even if a person isn't about knowing God at the moment. They have the capacity. They've been uniquely created. Dearest human, you do not have value Because of your breeding situation. You do not have value 
because of your status. Dear human, you have value because you have been created in the image of God. And by the way, that's not just you. That's just not the person who knows Christ as their Savior. This is the atheist. This is anyone who hates God. This is the indifferent. They have been created with a capacity, unlike anyone else on the face of the earth, to be able to have relationship with God. They have, if you will, they have the, the uniform ability with them, even if they're not living it. This doesn't mean that they're living in relationship with God. This doesn't mean that they're redeemed in Christ, but they still bear the image of God. Friends, this changes everything. Because this isn't just about you going, I have value because I've been created in the image of God. No, no, person to your left or to the right, both sides, they have been created in the image of God and they have value because God sees them of value because God has stamped them with this image capacity. Hey, that annoying person at work, that annoying person at school, They have been given and created in the image of God. Even if they, by their mouth, despise him. And God knows that. And so God continues life on. That as many could know him as possible. When you came in here this morning to church, did you step out of your comfort zone and maybe go and talk to somebody else? Why don't we do that? I mean, they're created in the image of God. Do we see people like that? Kids, do you see your mom and dads and understand they've been created in the image of God? Do you understand that your sister, your brother, been created in the image of God? Hey, spouses, do you realize that your spouse has been created in the image of God? There's something unique about them that you need to be careful about. People at work. People at school. Hey, we need to stand up for uh, the unborn and for euthanasia. Why? Because they have been given the image-bearing reality of God on them. And they're not just a piece of cell. And they're not outdated. Did you see what I'm talking about here? And this whole city of refuge, part of what it's built on is God understands that. And God cares about people because there's uniqueness about people. Oh, and by the way, let me if I have this correct, help me in this. Did not the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh to live among people that gave their adoration of him and spit their guts out at him? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because they bear the image of God. And by the way, we're not talking about innocent people. We're talking about guilty people because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the image-bearing reality of every one of us fits also with the reality that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet he came in our place to do something for us that we could not do ourselves, and that's redeem us out of our sin condition. And he loved you and I so much that he did that, making redemption available. He got himself involved with people who weren't so hot on him because he loves them. And I think we need to be more of that. We need to be more of that.
huge passage on the sanctity of life. Second, the Lord greatly gives mercy. I've kind of already alluded to that, so just quickly. Cities of refuge are these Old Testament illustrations of the gospel. I think about this, three things. Christ's mercy is easy to reach. I've already talked about how, uh, you know, these, these are cities of refuge. They have big open roads, well cared for roads. Why? So that you can get there fast. They're open all the time, 24-7. They never shut. These cities would have walls around them and gates on them. And cities in that day would shut down at night. Not these cities. These six cities were set aside to be open all the time for any time any situation like this would come about. And I just want to remind us, Jesus Christ is not playing hide and seek. Jesus Christ is not doing a where's Waldo game. You know, like, uh, I'm making it really hard for you to find me. I, I mean, he's made himself fully available and fully known. What, what more does he have to do to reveal himself to us? He has no office hours because he's open 24-7. And there's no locks on his door. In fact, speaking of doors, Revelation 3.20 comes to mind. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will go in and eat with him and he with me. Got the picture? Jesus is not just standing there. He's standing wanting to come in and wanting to be a part and wanting to redeem you back unto himself. This is just such a beautiful picture of all that. And we are an endangered people in need of a refuge. Run there. Run there. Because his mercy is easy to reach. Second, Christ's mercy is totally sufficient. And the whole setup of this and the way that it worked the city of refuge would provide for this person for the rest of their life. Unless the high priest died and then they could be released. And I just want to say, Jesus Christ's forgiveness is infinitely available and infinitely forgiving. His life for you, equipping you and helping you, it's infinitely available. Run there, run there. It's totally sufficient. And third, Christ's mercy is open to all. I mean, there's a wideness to Jesus Christ's mercy. You don't have to crawl through a little cubby hole. It's not just for a select few made available, if you will. It's made available for all. Run there. In fact, in the text we see in Joshua 20, it talks about it's available to all. It was available to the Jew. It was available to the Greek. It was available to the Gentile. It was available to the barbarian. It was available to anybody who would run there. Run there is the whole idea of it. It's open to all. But let me add this note. Imagine a death occurs and you're scared to death. And you're in fear. And you start hightailing it to the city of refuge. And it's, let's just, it's night and it's dark and yet you're going and you're scared. Can you imagine how wonderful it would be to all of a sudden see it? I can be safe there. I can be safe there. But know this. It's not just about knowing that because there's more to the process of it. It's about this idea of coming and pleading your case. And what's the case? The case is this, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the case to be pleaded. 
And here's the thing, the person can stay outside the gate all day long. I know about that city of refuge. I even know how the whole thing works. I know how it takes place. I know the whole deal, but I'm not going to go and I'm not going to ask for it because I'm just embarrassed or I'm not going to, I'm not going to make my plea, my case for entry to it. Guess what? You're not in. That's just the reality of the situation. But coming before and pleading the case before. And then it's like this people in the city are like, come on in, man. That's what we're here for. This is a refuge. And I ask two things. Have you done that? And are we going to be that? Because God knows churches today are known more for judging people than they are for being a safe place providing mercy. I just want to take a couple minutes here and wrap it up. And I just ask you, if you'd close your eyes, bow your head, just kind of some quiet time. people of God, I want to talk to you first. You've run to the Lord. You've received Christ as your Savior. In this illustration, if you will, kind of this living illustration, you are in the city of refuge. God's forgiveness. You're in the safe place. Man, that's beautiful, isn't it? I just want to make it personal. Are you a safe place? Are you known as a person who is a safe place for people? Are you a safe place person living out the reality set aside unlike anybody else to where you're that kind of a person? Or are you an indifferent place? Or would people maybe view you as a scary place to go? As individuals, people have been redeemed in Christ. We're to be people that are safe places. Harvest is a church. I just kind of want to ask us, are we going to be this? There's an aspect of this of being a safe place. I mean, please understand that in the whole context of what's happening, sin was being dealt with relationships were being dealt with. This is not just whitewashing over anything and everything. But I said, so many people are viewing churches as not places of mercy, but places of judgment. I don't want to go there because I don't have the right clothes to wear. Or if you only knew my past, Are we okay if people come in here and look different than us and smell different than us and have junk in their history trunk? Are we okay with that? When we move into our building, Lord willing, end of this year, first of the next year, when we move into that thing, is that going to be known as a beacon of a safe place for people run there for hope and help? Are we just going to build that up as our own little kingdom thing where we pat ourselves on the back and get all arrogant and snobby? Oh God, spare us, right? love people better. I'm talking to me for sure. They bear the image of God. And by the way, church, when someone comes to that place where They proclaim, I desire refuge in Christ. We're going to swarm them with love, aren't we? 
care and joy, aren't we? I pray we are. Aren't we? I'd love to hear like a response on that. Amen. Aren't we? Increasingly so. Lastly, Maybe today this is hitting home for you because you're going, I'm scared. I'm in danger. And I'm outside the walls. And I need to enter in. I need to enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his forgiveness. Start over. And just within you, you're going, I desire refuge in Christ. I desire relationship with Christ. I desire my sins forgiven and a whole new life. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to encourage you to do so today. Do you think, by the way, that the person who, do you think they remember that day when they stood and they said, I desire refuge here? Do you think they remembered that day? I think that they probably did. Maybe you haven't done that. Maybe you're kind of walking around the outside of the refuge and you've never done that. Can I just ask, maybe right now is the time. What a beautiful situation this would be in because even that was a public scenario. And let me just kind of say it this way. If you desire to do that now, I'm just going to ask, maybe you just want to stand up and say, I desire refuge in Christ. I desire refuge in Christ. I don't know, would there be anyone that would want to do that this morning? Just as a beautiful way of, living out this picture of what's going on. You've never done that. and You just want to declare here to this church family, I desire refuge in Christ. Church family, wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't that be cool? Anybody? I'm not trying to press, push, manipulate. I'm just asking today. It's just so fitting to me. Anybody? Lord, I pray we walk out of this building this morning better understanding you. You're beautiful. That you would care for us. A people. Sinners. Always there. God, I would pray if anyone doesn't know you as their Savior, that this would just be a week they would think about that. They would come to realize they need to receive Christ as their Savior, confess their sin, drive the stake in the ground and pursue you. Lord, I pray we would be a church of refuge, safe place, safe place here, because you are a safe place for us. Oh, you're marvelous. In Christ's name we pray, amen.